Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. I had spent a, this thing's all wonky already. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> I'd spent six months in Japan. Uh, the first three months of my time I spent in Okinawa, a small island. Okinawa is kind of like uh, Japan's Hawaii, okay? Of course, I served at the Marine Corps unit there. It didn't feel anything like Hawaii, but I can tell you that's what they think of it as. And the other three months, I spent at a camp at the base of Mount Fuji. Many of you have seen Mount Fuji, a picture, a huge conical volcano, a dormant volcano. It's massive. It's kind of like the image of Japan, Mount Fuji. We arrived at night after a a few-hour flight. We're lugging all of our gear, and we walk into a barracks, and I asked the guys who'd been there last time, I said, so where's this mountain? They're like, well, it's sort of over there. And so in my mind's eye, when they said that, I imagined a sort of bump in the ground, maybe, something that looked like, you know, high, but it wasn't super high. So I went, we went in, we unpacked, went to sleep. The next morning I woke up, got ready to go out to go PT with the guys, that's the physical exercise, and I had really forgotten what was there, and I ran out the door, and I was just talking, and I turned, and there's this massive, massive volcano right next to the camp. It is just gigantic. And I thought, wow, what difference light makes, right? That whole time at night, we're unpacking, we're talking, we're in the midst of this giant monument of God's creation, and I didn't even know it for the darkness. Well, we live our lives with a mountain with us, next to us, residing right alongside us. We live in the shadow of it, yet we often fail to recognize it. We often fail to understand that in our day-to-day, there is a high and mighty tower, a mountain with us. Of course, I'm speaking about God. That mountain is God. It is the Lord's will in our life that more and more as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our understanding of who God is, that we begin to see the mountain that he is and relate the issues, problems, sin, stuff going on in our heart to the fact that he exists, and he is big, and he is mighty. Today we're in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, and in this passage is a continuation of last week. Last week we learned about how God had a plan of salvation from the beginning of time, even before that, the foundations of eternity, even before that, forever had a plan that he would call a people to himself that he would choose some out of that group, some that he would say, no, not these, these are mine. That he would love them, that he would invest in them, that he would give them an eternal inheritance that one day they would fulfill his ultimate goal to once and for all dwell with him. 
God's stated purpose is that they will be, I will be their God and they will be my people. So we talked about some of the background stuff, behind the scenes, what's going on. So Paul's continuing that through today. Epistles, which is a letter, this type of literary genre we're talking about today, were written in the face of situations. As we look through the Bible and we read epistles, we can surmise what was happening at the church to whom the letter was written. Ephesians is a little bit different. It doesn't really specifically say what's going on, but we can look, as we look at the letter, as we look at what Paul is saying, in terms of themes and subjects, we can surmise what it is is that it could be going on in Ephesus. The first is that they could have been struggling with issues that seem greater than them. They're overwhelmed. They don't even know where necessarily to begin. As we read the themes of what Paul's talking about in this letter, we can get that sense. They could have had, they certainly could have had problems with unity, including racial and ethnic bias. As we read and will read into chapter 2 and especially chapter 3, we're going to read a lot about how Christ came to break down the dividing wall between the races, to make one man, one people unto himself of every nation, tribe, and tongue. They certainly, if they're like any other church, frankly ours included, sometimes have problems getting along with one another. I mean, people are people. Someone asked me the other day, is it like being a pastor? I said, well, it's great until people get involved. <laughs> but, but that's kind of the way it is. People are people. They will always, oh, this thing's bother me. I don't know what it is. I'd rather. Can you hand me the handheld? Can you hear me now? All right. They could have been having problems getting along with one another. This is certainly a possibility. As we read through the second half of the book, we see that Paul talks about, based on what you know now about God, you should be interacting differently with one another because it should impact our deepest part of self. They definitely could have had issues with spiritual warfare. Paul brings up in chapter 6 about the impact that we have and about the forces around us that seek to distract us from Jesus. And he tells them, putting on the whole armor of God. I mean, it sounds like most churches, doesn't it? It could be a, a letter written to John Q. Church, any church in America or elsewhere. See, Paul's encouragement is not to just look at issues, but primarily and most importantly, look first to God. Truly seeing God for who he is, not just what he is like. Paul wants them to move beyond a knowledge of God, a simple knowledge of God to an experience with God, an understanding of God. And there is undoubtedly a difference. So turn with me to Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, there's some in uh, Pew's Bibles. There's also going to have the text up here. So read it with me. Verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul says, for this reason. Well, what is the reason? Well, back in the first 14 verses, he talks about how God had called people unto himself and that he had made the Ephesian believers alive with Christ, that they had been reborn. And the evidence of that rebirth was what they were doing with that now exhibiting faith in Christ, looking to him and realizing that their everything is in him. 
and allowing that truth, and this is part of our struggle, to permeate through into love for the saints. The way we believe Christ, the way we understand Jesus is only validated by the way we love one another, by the way we interact, by the grace that we extend to each other. Because I can have all knowledge, as Paul says. I can know all the mysteries of God, but in the end, if I have not love, I'm nothing. I have nothing. It's pointless. I would go for it. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. They've shown faith in Christ. They've shown love to each other. And so Paul says, you have been born again. And he gives thanks. He says, I do not stop giving thanks for you. Why? Why does Paul give thanks to God for the Ephesian believers? Because if we read the first 14 verses, we see that our salvation is a gift of grace. As we go through Ephesians again and again, we are going to see that our salvation is holy ultimately, purely rooted in God's grace. That God loved us so much, he made us alive with Christ. That he opens the eyes of our heart, as we see here, to understand who he is and what he has given us, to change our worldview entirely. It's all by grace, nothing that we have done. So Paul continues to make mention of them, remembering them in their prayers. I mean, we should be doing that. That right there is a lesson for us, shouldn't it be? I mean, how often have we prayed for each other just that thanking God for each other's salvation? I thank you, Lord, for these people's salvation that out of your grace and goodness, you opened their eyes and you did not have to. You opened their eyes. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, this is his prayer, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So here's our first main point for this morning, if you're taking notes. The better we see God, the more our knowledge of him moves beyond information to intimacy. It's a long, got some long points. Bottom line, the better you know God, the more close you're going to be to him. The closer you're going to be to him. You're looking for intimacy. Paul's prayer is that God may give you the spirit of wisdom. If you're looking at the ESV like we are up here, you'll see that the spirit is capitalized. The translators have interpreted this to mean the Holy Spirit of God. There's some good reasons for that. But these believers already have the spirit. Paul had just thanked them and thanked God for the fact that they were born again. So it cannot be that Paul is asking for something of a second blessing, or Paul is asking something that moves beyond salvation, as if salvation happens first and then a new thing has to happen. No, it's the natural progression of what has already happened in the previous verses. Another way of translating this, and this is sort of the way I take it, is can be spiritual wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. What Paul, I believe, is asking God, what his prayer for the Ephesian believers is, is that their heart would be open, that inner man, that deep place within their heart, the word heart in Greek, meaning their mind, their will, their emotions, every single aspect of them would have their eyes opened by faith to the reality of the mountain in their life, the God of majesty in their life. 
so that they would have wisdom, understanding on how to live life day to day. Isn't that something you would like? Knowledge about how to live day to day. It's a spiritual knowledge. It's a wisdom you need to look for. Sometimes we say, just tell me what I got to do. We'll search Google and top 10 steps to whatever you want to do. Earthly wisdom. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that God would open their hearts to spiritual wisdom. Because often God is asking us to do something that seems dipolar opposite than what the world would tell us to do, doesn't it? In fact, you can almost recreate the gospel by looking at the world and then writing a story completely opposite about what you see. Paul's prayer is that they would see from their inner self not just have a mind full of knowledge. And that they would have revelation given unto them. Revelation is this idea that God is opening, taking the glasses off, the blinders off by a supernatural power that the Ephesian believers would see, this is what God has done with you. Later in this letter, we're going to learn how each of us walked according to the pattern of this world at one time, whether we were saved at four or forty. And God, by his supernatural power, because of grace, reached down and opened our eyes. It's nothing that we brag about because we've done nothing. God has done it all out of his great love for us. The word here in knowledge of him is the Greek word epignosko. It's translated here as knowledge. There's a few other translation possibilities. Greek is an amazing language because you can attach words to words and make new words. So, for instance, we're in the last time seated together with Christ or raised up with Christ. We see that's one verb with three different parts get smashed together to make a new word. Well, this word is the word for knowledge, but with the preposition epi on it. It has this idea of a little extra. And whenever this word is used in the Bible, it's used of supernatural, moral, and transcendent knowledge. It's knowledge the world cannot give you. It's only knowledge that comes to us through a revelation of God. Generally, as we see in the world, especially as we see through his word, and extra especially as we see in our heart when we're born again. When we are given the spirit of God and regenerated, to new life. It's hard because in English, we don't have a word that really does this well. For my Spanish-speaking friends, we know that there's two words basically for the word no. There's a few others, but one is saber. That means to have factual knowledge about something, okay? The other word is conocer. That means to be acquainted with, to have an understanding of, to be aware of a truth. So if we ask someone, hey, do you know John? In English, we use the word no. I know John and I know calculus in the same way. In Spanish, I saber calculus, but I conocer John. I know John. I'm intimately acquainted with John. If I got any of that wrong, send an email and correct me later. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure I'm right. Paul's, and it's the same in Greek. Paul's prayer is not that you know God in the saber way, but conocer God. In fact, when you look at Spanish translations, that's the word they use. Paul's prayer is that we, by extension, would know God himself, not just know about God. It's a waste to know about God and not know God. 
This is what Paul is calling us to, something more beyond what we thought, even the, the first day that we're born again, that our relationship with God would go deeper and deeper, that we would know him, that when we call him Father, it would be more than just a title. It would be Father. That the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Spiritual vision. When I was in the Navy, we would do maneuvers. I was on a guided missile destroyer, and we biggest threat in the water, submarines. And so we would do a lot of training on these ships in order to detect, avoid, and destroy, if necessary, enemy submarines. And so we would set up training exercises where we would plot in the water subs. Even better, we would sometimes have friendlies come and try to attack us, sneak into our defenses without knowing, right? And so we would do these maneuvers, and it was so creepy, I think is the word I'm looking for. I don't know. To be standing on the deck of a ship and know that it's out there. To know that there's something out there lurking. And the only recourse that you have for detecting it and knowing that it's there and protecting yourself is, is sonar. A sonar. A machine that sends out a, an acoustic wave. And that when it touches an object and bounces back, they, dick, they figure out how long it took and they can see how far away this object is. You're flying blind except for this sonar piece. Except for the poop. Every time you hear a blip. You know that there's something out there. You don't know what it is necessarily. You don't know exactly other, but you know it's there. You know it's there. It's as if Paul is asking God to open our hearts, the sonar in our hearts. Because we live in a world where we're not going to see all of the enemy. We're not going to see what lies around the corner. We don't get a map of our whole life. We just see moment to moment. Paul is asking that God would give them the equipment, what they need in order to navigate life. And it's all by grace. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, passive, God has done everything. We have our human side. We study God's word. We try to understand who he is and see him in the text and understand, Lord, where are you? Where am I? By prayer. You know, we did a, during Holy Week, we did a candlelight vigil, and we had people who were downstairs in the Oasis room. I think there was about 15 of us. All the lights were off. There were candles there. We came in in silence. We sat down. The sense of being in a room with other people, they're not talking. You can barely hear them. They might shuffle a little bit here and there, but there's an awareness that there's somebody else there. This is the heart of prayer. We make prayer about words and how do I pray and how ultimately prayer is, I know you're there. And I know that you see me and I want to be with you. This is the heart of prayer. And through obedience, when we live according to God's will, God gives us more and more revelation of who he is. So he's asking for a deeper understanding of the wisdom of God, practical knowledge for living in light of God's truth and a deeper revelation of who God is, to know God. So what is the purpose of this divine wisdom and knowledge of God? To be smarter, to be more spiritual. I remember telling myself one time, if I just knew everything that was in here, I'd be okay. That is a, that's like, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. 
Paul's first prayer is that they would have a greater personal knowledge of God. So that, here's the purpose, next point, next, next verse, sorry. That you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. That you may know. This is a different Greek word. This one relates to like the, our word to know. That you may recognize, that you may see, that you may have the facts, that you may realize. That brings us to point two. The better we see God, the greater our hope for the life to which he has called us. The life to which he has called us. When we see God more clearly with the eyes of our hearts enlightened to the reality of his character, of who he is, and we interact on a relational basis, our hope grows. We find hope. Why? Because we realize we live with a mountain in our midst. We realize that the the things in our life, the people in our life, everything that we give power to in our life is nothing compared to God. My devotions, I was reading in Isaiah the other day, and it talks about, on the day of the Lord, Mount Zion, where the temple resides, will be lifted up. I was in Jerusalem, and we were walking, and they said, well, there's Mount Zion. It's not very big. It's not. There's other... Peaks that are larger than it. The temple doesn't even sit on the highest mountain of Jerusalem. But Isaiah says that on the day of the Lord, that hill will be exalted. God's dwelling place on earth will be the highest thing there is. It says everything will be brought low. From mountain to building to human pride. So that the highest thing there is, the highest what a precipice in any way, is God in his dwelling place, for that is where God lives. When we live with the knowledge that this is who resides with us, this is who is for us, this is who lives in us, hope for the future grows because our problems get punier. That is not to say that our problems don't hurt. That is not to say we don't struggle with pain. That is not to say that there's still fear of the unknown. But the answer is not to get a handle on my fear, to get a handle on my pain, to get a handle on my worry. It's to get a handle on who God is. It's to have a better understanding and awareness that God is greater than your problems. There's hope there. Paul says, the hope that is our calling. In common parlance, we use the word calling for vocation, basically. So what's your job? I'm called to working with so-and-so. I am called to doing this. The word here in Greek is a deeper word. It has three sort of ideas in it. The first is an invitation. God is inviting us to something. He calls us out of darkness to himself. There's a transformation. God redeems us and changes us as part of our calling, giving us every spiritual blessing that we read about last week. And finally, he calls us to send us on a mission to glorify God by reflecting his character and calling others to him. The way we were called is how God intends for us to be part of the calling process. To make it a little more confusing, we're called from something by someone to something for someone. A deeper knowledge of God our Father makes us aware that our situation is never hopeless in Christ. 
The spirit of Christ living in you, in your hearts to communicate to you, empower you, and comfort you has been given by God. Yet we often say, hush you. Thanks for the fire insurance. Thanks for my salvation, but I got it from here. And we wonder why we're hopeless. Christ has overcome sin and death and the sinful things of this world can find redemption in him. Christ is more powerful than your circumstances, but we hope in the wrong things and give them power instead of God, don't we? I hope I get this raise. <laughs> I hope my kid gets this figured out. Meanwhile, we're waiting for external things on earth to change in order for us to find hope and feel better. Instead, Paul wants us to direct the eyes of our hearts to God. God is greater than our problems. Because this hope is revealed to us by God's grace, we ask him for it. Pray that the Lord would open your eyes to see his glory. Think about that. I'm struggling in life, say. I'm, I'm having maybe an illness or something's going on relationally in my life or in my family. I don't know about my job. I don't know what's going to happen. And we say pray about it. And so then we, and we leave it at that. And so, or I'll pray for you is another one. How about pray for them right then? That would be a good thing. Anyway, so I'm going to pray for this. So we get down on our knees, hopefully, maybe, and we say, Lord, humbly I come before you to please give me this promotion. Or we say, Lord, I'm so nervous about this situation, make me not nervous. I'm having anxiety and fear. Lord, can you teach me how to deal with that? when our prayer should be, Lord, show me your glory. Show me who you are. Because I know that if I can understand who you are, if I can be aware of the character that is in you, if I can see you for you, all of this doesn't matter because it is in the shadow of the mountain and it goes away. It goes away one way or another in this life or ultimately in the next. Or reading God's word, Lord, show me who you are. Show me yourself in this passage. You will find hope in him. And the life, sometimes the tough life, to which he has called you. Next line. What are that we would know the hope that we have, first prayer. Second, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? The better we see God the greater our understanding of our future. The better we see God, the better our understanding of our future, not particularly salvation. We're not paupers. Many of us walk around with the poverty mentality. I have nothing. I don't have enough. Whether it's finances or spiritual or whatever, we just want more. But we're not paupers, no matter how poor we may be in earthly terms because we have been granted everything in the next life with the Holy Spirit as our down payment. We talked about this last week. This is what Paul is bringing forward into this text. The Spirit, even though we look at our heavenly blessings, brings us things into the present. So what is that? Or let's look at our heavenly inheritance first. First, it's eternal life, namely. Matthew 5.5, 5, you will inherit the earth. Hey, you renters out there, you're going to have your own property. We will inherit the earth. And those who own property, you're not going to have to pay taxes. 
There'll be a time when we will come back and we will reign on earth with Christ as king. We will be co-regents just as we were intended to be made at the beginning. Think about that. Matthew 21, 43, we'll inherit the kingdom of God. Not only will we have the earth in place, it will be reigned once and for all by the one true king without competition from any other place. Hebrews 1.14 will inherit salvation. Ultimately, one day we'll be completely healed standing before him in every way. Ephesians 8.17, we shall inherit glory. We're going to be glorified with him. Think about that. Isaiah, I've been re- like I said, it's all about earthly glory and how God thinks about it. It's garbage. And all of us seek it in one way or another. One day when we suffer with Christ here on earth, we'll be exalted with him and share his glory. 1 Peter 3, 7, we inherit grace. You think grace is good now because what God has done through Christ in it. Think about what it's going to be like in heaven when we realize finally what God through Christ has done. 1 Peter 3.9, blessing. You're blessed. Titus 3.7, eternal life. To sum it all up, we shall be richly and perpetually blessed as we inherit eternal life in a place where heaven meets earth, free from the taint of sin, all by God's grace and all for his glory. That is what we have to look forward to. Our problems are small. In light of that, it's as if we have a huge bank account And the spirit is our ATM. I tried so hard to figure out what ATM stands for. Some spiritualization. Seriously, all we have to do is go. All we have to do is go and we get another withdrawal. This is the promise of what life right now in salvation is like. That we always and forever have access to the riches of heaven in this moment. That $400 limit's getting me though, I gotta be honest. The present implications of our future inheritance, because we have these things in the future and they are guaranteed by the Spirit of God, we can be released from our fear of death. Think about it. That we need not fear death because of what awaits us on the other side. I used to be terrified of dying. Before I knew the Lord, I, you know, I would tell myself, well, either there's some amorphous thing out there that I become one with, but more likely it's just lights out. That terrified me. Terrified me. Today I know where I'm going. I know what it is. And those of you who have trusted Christ know where you are going. Today I just fear the process of dying. The present implications are a new and unchanging identity in Christ. You've been called and are a child of God, and nothing can take that away. You will always be a child of God, forever given the title of beloved son and daughter. So what does it matter what other people say? You can have confidence in God's grace because he's given it to you in the beginning to save you and open your eyes. He will surely give it to you to continue on. And you have spiritual power. Perhaps most importantly, your life has meaning. Meaning. I don't always know what that meaning is. Sometimes that's something for you and the Lord to work out. That's a way that God wants to wrestle with you and talk to you about what your life means. But we have meaning. There's something bigger and greater and grander to which we are participating.
famously been said, who ha- he who has a great why can endure almost anyhow. I'll drop it. It's Friedrich Nietzsche, not the most beloved Christian character, but he said it nonetheless. And it's true. Even a broken clock's right twice a day, right? So, he who has a great why can endure almost anyhow. We have personal knowledge leading to the hope to hope and an inheritance, but there's even more than that. Verse 19, hope, knowledge, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. The better we see God, the greater our appreciation for his infinite power. Infinite power. When we grow in our relationship with the Lord, meaning when we see him better as he is, when we grow in our intimacy with God, we have a greater appreciation for his glory and his power, his might and his majesty. As we look across the pages of the scripture, we see again and again God showing himself strong. Page one, in the beginning, God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. Think about nothing for a second. Initially, you might say empty space, but empty space is something. Think about nothing. It's impossible. When nothing existed, God said, let there be. And something came from nothing. The Exodus, the Jews held in captivity in Egypt, God coming through with mighty signs and wonders, 10 plagues upon the people of Egypt and pulling a people, redeeming a people for himself through the parting of the Red Sea and miracle after miracle after miracle. Christ on the throne in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up, and the thresholds of the temple shook, and the train filled the temple. Power. Isaiah couldn't even look. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Calming of the storm. The disciples in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, about to be capsized, and Jesus is asleep. We were laughing with someone the other day. If it was today, he'd be texting. He'd be on Instagram while the whole world's coming apart. What are you doing? He gets up, enough. Boom, everything stops. What do they say? Even the wind obeys him. It harkens back to to the book of Job where it talks about God the creator, everything obeys him. And one day the heavens and earth will be rolled up like a scroll. And we'll get to see what we didn't see in Genesis. Think about that. We are going to get to see the creation of the new world because of this calling to which God has called us, this salvation by grace to which he has called you, opening the eyes of your heart. Not only do we see it in Scripture, but if we're really open and we're looking We'll see God's power in our own lives. God's miraculous intervention in our own rebirth. Like I said, whether it was four or 40. Whether you were a square or a scoundrel. It's all a miracle. It's all a miracle. God's powerful working in our life to overcome sin and deal with our difficulties. There are things that I don't struggle with today that I struggled with before. And I'm sure there are things that you don't struggle with today that you struggled with before. Guess what? That's God's power working in you. 
as an addict, I know what it feels like to never, I don't know how to get control of this thing. It's not in me, but God. But God. God's strength in turning even the hardest heart of those we know and love toward him. People that we never imagined would come to know the Lord. God breaking through. But we must be looking. And that's the heart of Paul's prayer. The greatest demonstration of all that list that we see of God's power was the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ, what we just celebrated at Easter. Verse 20. The power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he, that is God, put all things under his, that is Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is the God that we serve. That is the mountain in our life. The power that did this in Christ and exalted Christ at the right hand of God where he reigns in glory is the same power that we have here. April 23rd, business meeting Sunday. Do you believe it? Do you? That is what a life of faith looks like. It's yes, I believe it. I got an upset stomach, got up late. Yes, Christ reigns and he reigns here too. What if your life looked like that? What if you woke up every day? What if we came to church on Sunday knowing, well aware of the mountain in our life and that we will stand before him and praise him? What if Sunday was an overflow of everything that God had done in your week? Instead of a time to get here and pumped up like a flat tire. Christ reigns in power and majesty at this very moment. The powers that seek to control us, and there are many, are no match for our Lord and King. We can successfully resist sin in our hearts out of our own strength? Nope. But we got a reigning King here with power. We can exercise our faith with confidence because he will not fail. We can face the reality of our own broken hearts because we have been saved by grace alone. We can face our fears of this world because in the end, they don't matter. And one day we will stand in glory. Perfect. And we have recourse amid the tumult and craziness and sinfulness that this world has to offer around us. The better we see God, the more our knowledge of him moves beyond information to intimacy. Seek to push into who God is. Lord, I want to know you. The better we see God, the greater our hope for the life to which he has called us. Lord, you called me. This life is hard, but I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to look to you with confident expectation. The better we see God, the greater our understanding of our future salvation. And the better we see God, the greater our appreciation of his infinite power. There's a mountain in your life. 
a strong and mighty tower that we don't see because we're distracted. We're too busy at our own business, thinking of things that we need to do to overcome the world, looking at the things of the world and giving them far too much power. It's called idolatry. But like Paul, it's my prayer that God would open the eyes of all of our hearts, every one of us, that we may know and see and recognize our sure hope, our enormous riches, and the infinite power that is available to us in Christ. Just as Paul prayed for them, you can be in prayer for me too, because I could use a little bit of that action. I'm not going to lie. Let's do it for each other, for the sake of the Lord, for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for our salvation. We thank you, Lord, that it was your good plan to open our eyes at just the right time to call us to yourself. Now, Lord, we ask that just as you've opened our eyes to your presence, that you would open our eyes to your person. We pray, Lord, that you would have a deeper and abiding place in each one of our hearts. We pray, Lord, for the power to resist the sin that often separates us. We ask, Lord, for the power that often gives us fear over the things that we see day to day. Lord, help us to put our trust and confidence in you and you alone. Lord, we pray that you would give us as a first mind, as a first reaction to every thought that happens in our mind, every feeling that happens in our heart, Lord, the wherewithal to see Christ who sits on the throne high and lifted up at the right hand of you. Lord, I pray that you would change the hearts and the minds and the worldviews of the people here, not only at GBC, but in our community in our state, and in this world. I pray, Lord, that the whole earth would be full of your glory. And it would start with us as we live for you in our day to day. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.